Well, I'm a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, black and yellow, if anybody has ever, probably not, but uh, I grew up a Miami Dolphins fan, and uh, living in Western PA converted me to the, the Steelers, which is a pretty good deal because the Dolphins have two Super Bowl wins and the Steelers have no less than six. Uh, for those of you football fans, Christine and I lived in Pittsburgh while the Steelers won two of their six uh, championships or Super Bowls, which is, is cool. So there is a connection with my family and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Let's say in the fall that, that you and I watch uh, a football game together on TV, and I make the bold statement, the Steelers will win the Super Bowl. Well, you'd probably hear that as boastful and wishful thinking, especially if you're not a a Steeler fan. But everything changes if I said the Steelers will win the Super Bowl while we were watching ESPN Classic air the 1975 Super Bowl where the Steelers beat the Vikings 12 to 6 for their first Super Bowl victory. Then my bold statement would be obvious, the obvious truth, because the outcome is guaranteed, and we both know it. As long as we're watching the 1975 Super Bowl, we are watching an inevitable outcome unfold. Paul made a bold statement to the Roman Christians. He said, you will be saved. Their future salvation was inevitable and simply needed to unfold, and the certainty of their salvation depended on Two prerequisites. Paul began, verse 9, because if you, then he gave two necessary conditions for salvation, and then he concluded with, you will be saved. So the inevitability of their salvation depended on two conditions being met. If both conditions were met, salvation was guaranteed. If both conditions were not met, there would be no salvation. It's that clear cut. Romans 10 verse 9 is among the most important Bible verses for you to understand and absorb. Many intelligent people miscalculate how salvation works. If we would go around Lancaster County talking to people about salvation, my guess is the majority of people would have substantial misconceptions about how salvation actually works. My hunch is that only a small minority of people could give a biblical explanation of how salvation works. I think many people are deceived. And they've bought into the cultural philosophies and worldviews and opinions on salvation because they don't know what Romans 9 means and how it applies to them. I have two main points. They are simple and straightforward, taken right from Romans 10, 9. These two points tell us exactly how to be saved. They are simple enough for children to understand, and yet they are profound enough to mesmerize the greatest intellectuals. Here they are, two points. Number one, you will be saved if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And number two, you will be saved if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Two very simple points. The rest of this sermon is an attempt to make those two simple statements explicit. 
Those two points are obvious from verse 9, and you'll notice that Paul used the word for, F-O-R, five times in verses 10 through 13, which means Paul was offering various arguments to explain and substantiate verse 9. So I've, I've broken verse 9 into two points, and I'll explain them one at a time and then highlight Paul's explanations for each point from verses 10 through 13. My aim is to clarify and to explain the meaning of verse 9 so you know exactly how salvation works. Here's my first point. You will be saved if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It is all important that you know precisely what that means. What does it mean to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Well, it doesn't mean to simply say the phrase, Jesus is Lord, and then you're saved and everything is taken care of. That's not it. There's much more to it than that. See, demons cried out that Jesus was the Son of God. They declared the truth out loud, but demons won't be saved. In Matthew 7, Jesus talked about people saying to him, Lord, Lord, people who did amazing things in his name who will not enter the kingdom of heaven because he never knew them. So what does confess with your mouth mean if it's not simply stating that Jesus is Lord? To confess is to wholeheartedly agree with what you say. It is to declare something with unwavering commitment and with no reservation or denial. Confession can be linked in scripture with oaths. So it's strong language. Therefore, for a confession to be genuine, one's life must correspond to it, to their confession. See, if your life doesn't correspond to your confession, your actions invalidate your confession. If a wife confesses to her husband her respect for him, um, but then maligns him behind his back or cheats on him with another man, her disrespect invalidates her confession of respect. One's confession means absolutely nothing if their life fails to correspond with it. What must be confessed by someone if they are to be saved? Paul doesn't have some nebulous or undefined religious incantation in mind. Something very precise must be confessed if salvation is to be enjoyed. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. There it is. Jesus is Lord. That's all important. All important. Most people in America, they'll be able to tell you something about Jesus. But what does it mean to confess him as Lord? Lord. That's a big word. Why Lord? Well, kurios is the Greek word for Lord. Kurios is sometimes used as a common and respectful address for a man, kind of like saying sir. Uh, however, it is way more profound than, than sir. Kurios often means master or owner or a ruler who exercises authority. Thousands of times in the Old Testament and hundreds of times in the New Testament, kurios refers to Yahweh, to God. Kurios infers divinity. Listen, 
to Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. I think it will help you understand what Lord really means. Paul writes this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God gave Jesus Christ the name Lord, which means Jesus Christ is most highly exalted, supreme, preeminent, and holds exclusive and absolute power, authority, dominion, rule, and sovereignty, and all of this glorifies God. Therefore, to confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that God made Jesus Christ the preeminent, benevolent, sovereign who holds universal reign over everything, including you and me. No one will be saved without confessing the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. But even more, since someone's own mouth must make the confession, must do the confessing. Confession means a personal trust in and submission to Jesus as Lord. Dr. Colin Cruz said this, confession of Jesus as Lord meant that one belonged to him and submitted to him. So to confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that you belong to Jesus Christ and that he is Your Lord, your Lord, your owner, your master, your leader, your ruler, and that you will exclusively submit to him. Scripture drives the point home even more when it refers to believers as slaves of Christ or slaves of God or even slaves of righteousness. These are serious terms. So to confess that Jesus is Lord is to die to sin, renounce your autonomy, swear allegiance to your new master, and joyfully live to righteousness to please your new master. You do that by submitting yourself to his holy word, the Bible. Now, instead of indulging in sin, you indulge in Christ and his word. And none of this is drudgery or troublesome or oppressive. It is your outstanding joy. Scholar Leon Morris said, Confession is a public declaration of commitment to Christ and of faith in him. Pastor John MacArthur explained it like this. This is the deep personal conviction without reservation... That Jesus is that person's own master or sovereign. This phrase includes repenting of sin, trusting in Jesus for salvation, and submitting to him as Lord. Dr. Robert Mounts explained it like this. Those who come to Christ by faith are acknowledging that they have placed themselves entirely and without reserve under his authority to carry out without hesitation whatever he may choose for them to do. There is no such thing as salvation apart from lordship. Did you catch that? Mount said there is no such thing as salvation 
apart from lordship. There are oodles of people who love the idea of salvation, love the idea of escaping hell, love the idea of going to heaven, but loathe the idea of submitting to the authority of Jesus in every area of their life, their sexuality, their work, their entertainment, their marriage, their parenting, their money, their religious rituals. They want Jesus to save them, but they do not want Jesus to tell them what to do. What verse 24 is saying is that in order to be saved, one must submit themselves entirely to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And scripture makes it clear that that this is a joy for them to do. Saved people want to submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Submission to their master becomes their greatest joy and pleasure. So that's the first part of verse 9. Now three explanations. Explanation number one. You'll notice that verse 10b is a restatement of verse 9a. For with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Jesus taught this. Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Paul was employing the doctrine of Jesus. Explanation number two, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Salvation is multi-ethnic. Jew or Greek? Doesn't matter. As long as you call on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one Lord and everyone who calls on him belongs to him and inherits his riches. Now let's say you have a great aunt Matilda who lives in Spokane, Washington. She's 115 years old and her her health is failing for obvious reasons. In her will, she has kindly bequeathed you $750,000. But her will has this odd little stipulation in it. You must call her on the phone and ask for the money before she dies. If you don't call her in time, the $750,000 will go to her bingo group, half of whom she doesn't even like. All right. Would you make it a point to pick up the phone and make the call? I don't think you'd put that call off. You don't want to to lose the money to the bingo ladies who are just going to squander it away on mink coats, limousines, nightclubs, caviar, whatever bingo ladies do. Come on. No, you want the $750,000 of Matilda, so you're going to call Matilda right away to gain the inheritance that would become rightfully yours. If you don't call upon the one Lord of both Jews and Greeks with great humility and urgency, he will not bestow his riches upon you. But if you see your great poverty and need, and you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved and will come in to an incalculable inheritance from him. Here's explanation number three, verse 13. For 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is not simply for the Jews. Verse 13 connects to verse 12. Everyone who calls, Jew or Greek, right? Isn't that what it says? As long as a person calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Understand what Paul was doing. He was quoting the prophet Joel to make a point about the Lord. He was using ancient sacred scripture to, to authenticate his point. He's not just making it up. He's getting it somewhere. Here's what Joel 2.32 says. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Ethnicity is, is unimportant. Calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins and guilt and the impending judgment of God is all important. If calling on the name of the Lord is necessary for salvation, why don't some people do it? Why not do it and be saved? Why live under the burden of the condemnation of God? Why? Why would you not call upon the Lord? Because they don't see any need to. They feel self-sufficient without Jesus. I'm fine on my own. And they will perish in their pride. It is the indigent, the needy, the destitute of heart that call on the Lord and only they will be saved. The self-sufficient, the self-righteous, they will perish. David beautifully sang, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Okay, you see? God, God responds to those who call out for him in great need. He responds. He gets it done. He promises to save them. And 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, it keeps us humble, those of us who call upon the name of the Lord. It says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. The definitive factor in our confession is not our intellect or instinct or, or great spiritual awareness. We get it. Nobody else does. We're awesome. Why can't those dummies see it? That's not it. No, no. It is the sovereign grace and illumination of God. My friends, you will be saved. It's a sure thing if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Here's the second main point. It is equally as important as the first. In fact, it is inseparable from the first. Uh, they work synonymously unto salvation. Here's the second point. You will be saved if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess and believe and be saved. All interconnected. Let's break it down. First, the way Paul uses the Greek word pistuo suggests something stronger than thinking something is true. It's trust. Trust in, when you hear the word believe, your mind should go to trust in, depend upon. Belief in Jesus should, should never be reduced to intellectual agreement with certain 
doctrines. May it never be just that. It must be a trust in or a dependence upon a person. A person. People believe investing is good, but then they don't do it. People believe doctors can help people, but then they don't make an appointment and go to one. People believe that it is good to eat healthy, but then they just eat junk food. Intellectual agreement doesn't always translate into trust. The heart, in verse 9, represents the inner self, including the mind, the will, and emotions. To believe in your heart is to trust Christ with all your mind, all your will, and all of your emotions. If you were in a bad car accident, uh, you might need a ventilator to breathe for you uh, so that you can rest, your body can rest, and that you can heal up. Without the ventilator, you, you couldn't breathe on your own, and your organs then wouldn't get the oxygen that they need, and you could get hypoxia, which could kill you. Well, that's the kind of, of dependence implied in believing in your heart. Our need for the Lord is so great and continuous that without him, we die. To believe in your heart is to be vitally connected to Jesus, drawing life from him every moment of the day. That is how much we need him. So, so what needs to be believed? God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. That means Jesus lived. That means he died. That means he lived again. So to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead is to also believe everything Jesus taught and everything his death and resurrection accomplished. There is an intimate connection between the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Like old blue eyes sang, you can't have one without thee. Other. They come together. You have to have both. The resurrection means that your old self has been crucified with Christ on the cross. But your new self lives in Christ precisely because he was raised from the dead and raised you from the dead. Now, not just at the end, but now. Allow me a quick aside here. Some very intelligent people would like us to believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is irrational and silly, like believing in leprechauns or unicorns or fairies. They'd like us to believe that the only rational thing to believe in your heart is science. Plenty of people out there. I think that that is intellectually dishonest. And let me just give you three thoughts to think about. Number one, the scientific method works for some things, but it doesn't work for history. If science is our only rational test of truth, then we will be stunningly naive and ignorant about many other rational things. The historical method provides us rational evidence where science doesn't. For example, eyewitness testimony indirect witness accounts, source criticism, archaeology, and logic, which all help us piece the truth together. How about we use science and history and philosophy and theology together to help us arrive at the truth? Number two, almost 2,000 years after the event, what makes us think 
that we have a more rational perspective than hundreds of people who experience the resurrected Lord firsthand. It blows my mind, the arrogance of Americans. The eyewitnesses of the resurrection were not some handful of delusional people having fun taking drugs and hallucinating. 1 Corinthians 15 recounts more than 500 people seeing Jesus alive all at the same time. And when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, most of those eyewitnesses were still alive. Which means the people reading Paul's letter could have gone to those eyewitnesses and interviewed them of exactly what happened. For verification, atheism, agnosticism, naturalism, and any worldview that rejects the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ are the epitome of arrogance because those worldviews assume superior knowledge to the eyewitness testimonies of people who experience the actual events, not even to mention the indirect witnesses who knew the credibility of those hundreds of witnesses. Do you see my point? Number three. People don't actually reject the resurrection because of a lack of evidence. You have to know that. There is so much written on this stuff that after a while as a Christian reading this, you're just like, you know what? It's not about evidence. It's not. People reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ for moral reasons. This is not rocket science. They reject it for moral reasons. They don't want Jesus to be alive because if he is, then they answer to him as Lord. But they don't want to answer to Jesus. They want to do their own thing, live in their own sin. They don't want someone telling them what to do. That's why people reject it. No, I don't believe in God because if you say that, you don't have to answer to him and you do what you want. But that's intellectually dishonest because you overlook all of the evidence and this is peculiar too, you overlook the joyful life of obeying Jesus. The fact that that's just a better way because he cares for us. So when I say this intellectual struggle, uh, believers understand this tension too. If Jesus is raised from the dead, I have to do what he says. And that's actually best for me. Like that's a tension for all of us. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then Jesus' prophetic prediction of his own resurrection would be authenticated and if jesus was right about that everything else that he ever said is authenticated as well listen to what pastor john MacArthur wrote about that christ's resurrection was the supreme validation of his ministry belief in it is necessary for salvation because it proved that Christ is who he claimed to be and that the father had accepted his sacrifice in the place of sinners. Dr. Robert Mounts added this, it is the reality of the resurrection that leads that lends credence to all that Jesus did and taught throughout his earthly life. So here's what I'm getting at. To believe or trust in the resurrection deep in your heart is to believe and trust everything that Jesus taught and believed. Which includes all of sacred scripture from Genesis to Revelation. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you can't pick and choose what parts of the Bible you're going to believe. You don't get to do that. You believe all of it unreservedly because your Lord and Savior gave it to you and he believes it. 
Jesus stands behind all of Scripture, all of it. Therefore, we must joyfully submit to all of it. Here's how Paul explained the second part of verse 9. Explanation number 1, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Justified corresponds to saved. If someone is justified, they are saved and will be saved. Earlier in Romans 5, 9, Paul said, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Justification corresponds to salvation. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be righteous in God's sight. It means that by trusting in Jesus Christ's perfect life, substitutionary death, and miraculous resurrection, God considers you, God counts you as perfectly righteous. Jesus taught justification by faith. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 18, 13, and 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is what Jesus said. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That tax collector, who was probably not well-liked, knew he needed God's mercy, knew God would give mercy, called out to God in faith to receive mercy, and he was justified by his faith. Romans 4.3 is notable. It says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's justification by faith. Now, Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that one is justified before God, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. To be justified and saved, you have to believe and trust in and depend upon the resurrection. There is no other way. Explanation number two, verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame again. Paul draws from Old Testament scripture to substantiate his claim. He quoted Isaiah 28, verse 16, which says this, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a sure foundation a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. That sure foundation, that tested stone, that precious cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. And whoever believes in him will never, ever, ever be put to shame. Imagine. Coming to your final judgment, standing before the throne of God and being shamed by Jesus Christ because you didn't know him. You pushed him out for long enough, but now it's his time and he shames you. It's terrifying. He shames you and casts you into hell for eternal shame. That, that's terrifying. It's true, but whoever believes in Christ will never, 
ever experience that shame. Never. God has justified them by grace, alone, through faith, alone, in Christ, alone, to the glory of God, alone. Believers have no shame because their shame was eradicated by Jesus on the cross. I do shameful things, but I don't have shame. That doesn't mean remorse. It means I won't be shamed. And neither will you if you trust in him. You won't be shamed. I know I've separated verse 9 into two points, but we need to be careful how we think about that. Dr. Leon Morris said these are but two parts of the same saving experience. He's right. Confessing and believing are two parts of the same salvation experience. They are intertwined, inseparable, and indispensable. I've given you two simple points from verse 9. Number one, you will be saved if you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And number two, you will be saved if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. They are simple and straightforward. Uh, What you need to know is that there is no salvation outside of these two points. There's not another way. You're not going to come up with a better way. This is the only way. This is the only way to God. I know these two points are exclusive and intolerant, but the truth is by nature exclusive and intolerant. The truth of the resurrection may be exclusive. It may be intolerant, but it is infinitely loving. The benefits and pleasures of the resurrection are incalculable. Let me, let me lovingly and gently ask you just one question. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Please consider that question very, very carefully. If you have truly confessed and believed, then you are in a most wonderful place. You are free to enjoy the guarantee and assurance of your salvation. You are free to enjoy Christ. When your last day comes, you can smile at death, for it only walks you into the presence of your glorious Lord. You are free to enjoy the love and care and protection of Jesus, your master. You are free to enjoy being dead to sin and living to righteousness. You are free to enjoy communion with Jesus. You are free to enjoy doing good works for the glory of God because the power of the resurrection compels you. If you have truly confessed and believed, you are free to enjoy the limitless blessings given to you by God through Christ. You will be saved. Not if, but when. But, but, if you have not, truly, with the deepest recesses of your heart and soul confessed and believed, a reality that perhaps only you and God know, please realize there is a sobering but very gracious if staring you in the face and it is not going away. If you confess, 
If you believe, you will be saved. As long as you refuse to confess and believe, you will not be saved. Don't be under that false hope. You're not going to be saved until you do, verse 9. You will perish in your sin. And that should be sobering to you. That should be unnerving to you. You should have no peace in life. You shouldn't even be able to function. But here is why I said it is a very gracious if. God has spoken clearly to you this morning, my friends. You have heard. You are accountable. He has made the good news plain and simple. He's put it out there for you. And he's making you an awesome promise. You will be saved if. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your clear word. We all need to hear this. We all need to look inside of our hearts and contemplate whether we have confessed Jesus as Lord. And not just saying it, confessed him as our Lord, our master, our owner, our ruler, our sovereign. God, we need to ask ourselves, have I believed? Truly, with all of my being, believed and trusted in and depended upon the fact, the historical reality that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead by God. So I am asking God that you will very mercifully, very gently, but very strongly convict those who have not confessed and believed. I know there's some here. I might not know all of them, but I'm assuming they're here. May this word pierce their heart and lead them to everlasting joy in Christ because they're missing out on so much and they don't even know. And God, for every single one of us who has trusted, who we've confessed, we've said, yes, Jesus is Lord, he's precious, he's mine, I'm his, I, I love him. Yes, I believe in the resurrection, it's precious to me, but oh, how I struggle. I pray that you build up your people that they would know the power of your resurrection in their lives, that they would be led unto submission to Jesus with all of their heart, being joyful to do exactly what, his, what he said by the power of his spirit. God, build up your church. Save people, sanctify people, grow people, build up people, give people their greatest joy in Jesus. That's what we want here at Jerusalem Church. All for your glory, Father, through your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.